Welcome to the show. This is Greg Conte. I'm here with William. The topic of our show is Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, one of the most notorious uh, and evil people in all of world history. Or or is he? Well, yes, yeah, the thing. Was also, we should add another one of his middle names in there, Ichigo. Oh, it, yes. Yes, so, it, it denotes his origins as a, as a, as a mixed-race individual. Kalergi was a... Uh, Austro, an Austrian and a half Austrian, half Japanese nobleman in the early 20th century. He, I guess, he died in 1972. So he was flourishing from World War One, World War Two, after World War Two. And he is probably most famous for a quote from a book that he wrote in 1925 called "Practical Idealism." And the quote is to the effect that the future Europe needs to have a a African, Eurasian mixed race the, underclass. The specific term is Eurasian Negroid. Yes, a Eurasian <laughs> Negroid underclass and a an overclass of cosmopolitan Mandarin type people. A lot of theories have been made. There's the a allegedly a conspiracy theory about this quote uh, that this foreshadows the the desire of the elites to bring in all kinds of Africans and, and Middle Easterners into Europe to race mix and destroy the white race. Yeah, the, the current immigration problem that we see. Right. I mean, yeah, it's 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 one of those things where it's like, you, it, yeah, you can call it a conspiracy theory, but this seems to be what's happening. Right. But on the other hand, that quote does, having read both of both you and I, having read a lot of Kalergi's stuff and a lot of stuff about Kalergi, this quote isn't really representative of what the guy thought and believed. Now, that's not to say that he's good. Right. We're going to explain all the ways that he isn't good and that he's super <laughs> evil. But he, it's one of those things where my takeaway on Clarity is that he's, he's like accidentally evil. It's like the, yeah. the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. And I, it's as I think we were, you know, the, the concept of it, him being hijacked as a philosopher, I think, by the current elites or or by the elites of the time. Because his ideas were obviously completely different than what was going on at any other time. Um, well, actually, no, we can we can ring on that. It's not actually that it's completely different because he, he about... has a lot of similarities with people like Spangler or Madison Grant, even or right. uh, Lothrop Stoddard. A lot of these racialist thinkers or Hitler. Yeah, uh, he he's he takes a lot of the same assumptions. He knows race is real. He he knows Jews are smart. I mean, he has he's reasoning from so a lot of the same positions that any national socialist would reason from but he's coming to very different conclusions and and i I would argue an idealist conclusion as compared to a realist conclusion well yeah so like i I guess the best way to say it is i mean succinctly is that he whereas hitler or a national socialist vision for future europe is that there is one nation the strongest nation and from hitler's point of view that was that had to be germany would unite europe and lead europe and from Clarity's point of view, he didn't want to build from the ground up. He wanted to build across the elite. So he wanted to take all the elite from the different countries and then stitch them together uh, or have them bring their countries together into a sort of into a European Union, which he is the father of. It's focusing around the triumvirate of England, France, Germany was his, his major point. So right. I mean, it, was, it, was question, it was questionable whether England was a part, but yeah. But. Right. Well, it, well, his idea originally was that it had to be England, France, Germany, but then after the fact... It, that kind of changed. well, which which yeah. makes sense because yeah. those are the three most powerful countries right. in Europe. So you would you would naturally stitch but those three England's, together. England's ambitions obviously changed as he as he said specifically they were more focused on their empire as compared to a European empire. 
true. Uh, one of the other models that Clergy often talked about were Switzerland being a confederation of three different language groups, Austria-Hungary, his homeland, or his sort of homeland. Right. <laughs> uh, he, he did live the first couple years of his life in Japan, but he really grew up in uh, Austria-Hungary. And, uh, and then the United States. He wanted to build a United States of Europe. And he so, was quite critical of Russia, despite understanding that it was in a very strong position compared to the other empires. Yeah. So um, the book we read on this was Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard <laughs> by Martin Bond. The The title is a, is a, actually a quote from Hitler. It's from, I think it's from Mein Kampf. It is, H- yeah. Hitler mentions Kalergi and refers to him as the, that cosmopolitan bastard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really wrong, you know? So uh, Hitler had a sense of humor. Right. And I think the, the bastard part was probably in reference to his family history a bit. Because there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun that his dad Heinrich uh, Heinrich uh, Kudenhoff and Kalergi. Uh, well, had. yeah, let's get in, into that in a second. I just yeah. wanted to say about <laughs> about the book though. This book came out last year, and it's by far the best book about Kalergi that there is. Agreed, as far uh, as and it's a, it's the first concerned. book in English too. There are a couple. There are Kalergi's books about his own life are all in German. I don't think any of them have been translated. Not that I'm aware I, of. No. I read last year and reviewed a little bit before this Kampf um Europa aus meinem Leben which he wrote in 1949 I think and then there's also some other books uh, in German there's one called Richard Kudenhove Kalergi Ein Leben für Pan Europa by <laughs> Walter Gehring which is it's okay but the, this Martin Bond book in English is, is honestly much better so for all of you English speakers and readers, uh, you can finally get the whole story on Clergy. And the advantage that the Bond book has over the Clergy autobiographies and the you know other books in German about Clergy is that, well, especially over the Clergy autobiographies, is that it talks about his rivals and his problems. Clergy, when he writes about himself, has this tendency to talk about it like it's a fantasy or a fairy tale. And everything, yeah. everything just went so great. It was so fun. <laughs> um, everyone loved me. Uh, I'm sure from his uh, perspective in the cafes in Europe, it did seem like that. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, he just doesn't mention his problems. I mean, these, right. his biographies are or his autobiographies are basically just propaganda. The, yeah, most of his <laughs> literature is, too, you know. But uh, it, one one other thing on, on his his writing, uh, you, you've noticed this as well, that his writing style is very good. It is phenomenal. I, it is. It's, it's, it, it is <laughs> credit where credit's due. The man is extremely well put. If, if you are a, a German student or a, a student of German language, you're like maybe third year or so in college, reading Kalergi's books, I mean, they're evil. Don't, you know, make sure to you know, wash your brain out with some <laughs> you know, footage from Triumph of the Will afterwards. A lot of salt, yeah. <laughs> but just from a purely linguistic, grammatical point of view, they are very well written, very easy to understand, even for a, a, a foreigner who's reading German. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk about Clergy's background and his life. So, so do, uh, do you want me to start with the uh, the fun bit for? Yeah, let's let's talk about his, his ancestry. So he was, I mean, he, the Clergy name is Greek. No, no, it's, it's Polish. Oh, it is the Pol- Yeah. So, in, and this is when the thing. So the the well, it might his his mother that had the Clergy name was Polish, and they might have come from a Greek no. The Clergy, I think, is is a Greek name. The name is oh Greek. right, yeah, yeah. But Kudenhove is Dutch. Yeah. And then his mother's, and that's from his father's side, his mother's yep. family was Japanese. 
Oh, oh, I'm yeah. My apologies. I was thinking back to Heinrich. I thought we were going no, back no, to his father, his, where his father got the name from, and whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So sorry. Back, going back to his grandfather. Yeah, far back then. So his his grandfather was Franz uh, Franz Kudenhofer, or Franz von Kudenhofer, because it was he was obviously a noble at the time, and it was his father Heinrich, so the son of Franz, uh, that married a Polish princess who had the last name of Kalergi. And that's where the, the kudenhoven Kalergi element comes from, where the Polish princess got her name. I'm assuming it's it's actually uh, Greek, but the but that's how aristocracy was all throughout Europe, right? Everybody got different names from different places because they were all intermarrying between the, the aristocracy. So Kalergi's grandfather, uh, Count, who's still a Count, uh, Kudenhoven Kalergi, Count, Count Kudenhoven, this gets complicated, so do forgive us. But he had been in service to the Habsburg uh, dynasty, uh, and his family had been in service to the Habsburg dynasty, apparently uh, going back for 500 years, unbroken, an unbroken lineage of service to the Habsburgs for 500 years. Um, and so Franz was very much uh, an old world style aristocrat uh, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that means that you weren't allowed to marry outside of the aristocracy. And so while his son, Heinrich, which was Richard's father, uh, was in school, he met up with a nice French girl in art class, right? Uh, where one does. Where one does, right? <laughs> so he met up with a nice French girl, uh, although she was of the lower orders, as they would put it, right? So she was not exactly of the higher of the higher classes. So as one does with French girls, right, there was some... Uh, I don't know how to be. I don't know how to put this in, in a very succinct or uh, yeah, how to polite not, way. How to not say this without sounding like an, like an asshole? Right. There's really no other way. So um, he uh, he had relations with her, I suppose, right? And she became pregnant. With that being said, it was obviously a banned. It wasn't. It was not. It was banned. It was just. It was banned by friends, uh, Heinrich's father, because it just wasn't a proper matchup. And so the child, upon birth at, at the university, she stayed at the university. Uh, over over in, in Austria until uh, she had the child and the child was sent back to live with its grandparents of French descent back in, in, pa- in I don't think it was Paris, but it was in Europe or in France somewhere. So whenever this happened, though, in order to prevent Heinrich from going and seeking out this French girl, because he was actually in love with her. Right? Like, he fell in love with this French girl. Again, as one does. Okay. So, he wanted to pursue this French girl. And his father, Franz, said, absolutely not. And then he did the, the normal aristocratic thing and quarantined him inside one of his castles. Right. right. You, you imprison your child right. if they're trying to have uh, a relationship with somebody out, out who's inappropriate. Right. And and now, note at this time, uh, Franz Kudenhava was 21 years old at the time. Right. Richard's father was 21 years old. Still considered, at the time, in the empire of, of the Habsburg Empire as a minor. That's so. That's so reasonable. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's, it's, like you really are a minor until you're about 24. Right. You know, like in my opinion, be even further than that until the, the forebrain is completely developed. But still, it's, it's the point is that he's 21 and he's a minor, so his dad has the right to quarantine him in a castle. And he did this, uh, I believe it was in in one of his holdings in, in Bohemia. And so what happened though is that the French girl with one of her friends. Uh, tracked him down and tracked down this poor man in, in quarantine or whatever and went to 
to seek him out and say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm trying to find my long lost star cross lover. Right. Right. And uh, so, you know, you're my baby daddy. Right. You got <laughs> to pay. Right. And he had the he did have the money to pay. Obviously, he could have <laughs> he could have he could have given away one month's wages and made this girl's life in France infinitely easier. Although that wasn't what she was after. She was after, obviously, the love of her life because she's French. Right. And so um, Heinrich in his tower. Right. He had like a he had a very nice apparently had a very nice rose garden underneath the window of, of his of his bedroom at this castle and so when this girl went to uh with her friend to the castle uh franz franz Kudenhofer was was he headed her off at the pass right and he found he he went there before she was able to get to uh to heinrich and he didn't he denied her entrance into the castle he said no you can't you cannot see heinrich this is forbidden you know you can't do this right this is totally forbidden and so to protest how forbidden this this love affair was both the French girl and her friend. This is this is the the astonishing part to me is the fact that her friend went through with this. This is this is the best act of friendship I think in the history of mankind. So both of them went beneath Heinrich's window where he could see, and they both shot themselves and died upon a rose bed. Wow! It is the the real. Uh... <laughs> Sorrows of Young Werther right? sort of situation. It's very poetic, and the whole except backwards because the girls are killing themselves. Right? Yeah. So it's and it, it's a very serious act of emotion here, right? So both of the girls shot themselves to death uh, there, and they lied upon a rose bed and died in underneath the window of Heinrich. And so this traumatized the kid, obviously, right? Like it's this was his like his baby mama and had just shot herself with her friend underneath his window uh, in, in a very poetic way. And Franz, his father, was totally unapologetic about any of this. He did not care whatsoever about how this went down. And in order to, and this became a scandal, obviously, within the aristocracy thing, because you just can't have girls shooting themselves on your estate, right? That just doesn't go yeah, over it too does. well. Yeah, it doesn't look good. Right, it, it doesn't. So this is, this, you know, like the, the, the opening to this book is phenomenal, in my opinion. <laughs> this is the start of it. But so, um, in order to kind of subdue this scandal uh franz writes uh, a pseudo essay to th- that was only supposed to be given towards the aristocracy it was very it was supposed to be a very limited published um uh piece and it explained how he justified this whole ordeal by saying that the lower orders were supposed to afford the, the, the specifically the women of the lower orders were supposed to afford sport to the aristocracy that was his justification of it right which is preposterous i mean and i'm not even just saying that because i'm because we're like i don't know uh socialists because we're like liberal socialists or something right it's like no it, it is preposterous from the point of view of aristocracy you can't have that attitude and right. if you do have that attitude you better shut the fuck up about it right exactly that's that's keep that quarantined as, you can't as you can't you can't treat you know no european i not no european but right most european aristocrats the reason the european aristocracy worked for so long was because they didn't treat the lower orders like animals right that it was it was part of their folk that was the whole point is that that's where that's where the rustic aristocracy came from but now this also before you know like not to get off on a tangent but this also goes into later works of Caller like Richard Callergy specifically in practical idealism where he discusses the difference between your urban and your rustic aristocracy and then we can get into that in a bit later though um, but this this is this formulates the basis for these types of, of thinking that Richard had about it because considering from his grandfather's point of view that his grandfather thought that the lower orders were playthings for for the yeah. aristocracy um, so, so anyway the father so Heinrich the father 
was traumatized from this. Yeah, age 21, uh, that happens. Right. And then he spends most of his life as a, well, I guess the next 20 or so years, he was a, an ambassador. Right, well, so that's the thing. So the, an, an the, 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 um, the letter got out. So it was only meant for, for limited publication and only for a few eyes. But this publication about utilizing the lower order got out, and it was made totally public by the Austrian press at the time, especially in Vienna. And so it, it spread like wildfire and it was a total like scandal thing, right? Mm. It made the aristocracy look extremely bad. And this obviously was again, this probably played into some of the the detriment to the aristocracy of the Austro-Hungarian Empire leading up into the First World War. And that's a different story, but that that probably plays into that quite a bit um, as far as the press and everything else like that. But so that scandal got even worse and out of control. And the only way that he could continue to, in a sense, help his his son Heinrich, for Franz to help his son Heinrich get out of this scandal that had really been started by Franz himself, um, was to send his son off to finish school as close to the Russian border as possible and keep him out of Vienna. And then after he finished his diplomatic schooling, his law school, he sent him abroad. And he sent him to places like Argentina, to Turkey, to all sorts of places, anywhere but Vienna, right? Well, I mean, the, the Austrian State Department. You know, right, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so he sent, but he, he had a good life. It's not like he sent them away to live in, in poverty or something, but he was, you know, living as an ambassador in all these other foreign countries. But the reason why he was getting all these foreign ambassador positions is so that one of the most, um, well, not the, like just one of one of the oldest serving families of the Habsburgs that was involved in this scandal. It wasn't front page news all the time in Vienna, so they had yeah. to get this guy out of Vienna and send him abroad, right? Because again, he had been serving the Habsburgs for five hundred years. This is a thing that they have to do, and somebody so close to the the monarchy uh, couldn't have a scandal like this going on. So they right. had to send and so him the, abroad. This guy Heinrich, though, had he had a uh, I guess a pattern of behavior here. Where he was screwing people he wasn't supposed to be screwing. Right. First, it was these these lower class French girls. Then he he fathered uh, Richard, right? Of Clergy. And this is dur- this is what during his stint at the um, the embassy in Tokyo, when he was sent finally to the Empire of Japan, the Empire of the Rising Sun, as they put it. Mm. And so the thing is about uh, Mitsu or Mitsuko, as as his mother's name was, Richard's mother's name was. Uh, she was the daughter of a merchant. She was also not aristocracy, despite what the rumors are. So the most most people consider uh, Richard's mother to be or to have been part of the Japanese aristocracy. That's not true because the Japanese aristocracy had at the time a very strict yeah, my, my in-group preference. My Confucian values, right? Uh, which you know are correct. Right. Uh, merch, merchants can't be part of the aristocracy, and that's how it worked. And and the thing is, the is, Romans had the same attitude. Right. It, it's it, this is a, a normal a it's normal. Like what are you? Thing. What value are you providing? <laughs> you know, you're just producing money in a sense or you know values and goods and whatever heck else but you're not it's, it's about the genetic quality here not to say that mitsuko was was like dysgenic or something you know but the thing is is that she wasn't part of the aristocracy and while he was there um it seemed that he was only there for barely a month before he got involved with mitsuko so he was i wouldn't necessarily call heinrich a womanizer but he was definitely into so he was he was one of the guys that would probably go to those stingy clubs that we see today uh and and very much enjoy himself well he he's he, i mean at least when he was younger he strikes me as sort of a a lovelorn beta sort of type <laughs> uh, maybe he outgrew it later but 
I don't know. It doesn't really seem like it. Right. Yeah. Considering that. And then not only did he, uh, did he, but this is a thing. So he got involved with Mitsuko. They had Richard and all that other stuff, but he actually married Mitsuko. That was the thing. So, and and he did this because he was so far away from his, uh, from his father and everything else like that. He was so far away from Vienna that he could do honestly anything he wanted out in the embassy in Tokyo. So he did end up marrying Mitsuko and then they had Richard, which is where Richard's middle name comes from, Ichigo. He was Japanese and his mother wanted him to have at least some of his Japanese heritage in the name. And he had um, he had several brothers and sisters, but the main the main two were his, his he was the second of of the the siblings and the there was one elder brother and and one the uh, brother immediately below him who had interesting stories as well right uh, but this this kind of position in the in the 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 ranking of his family though did absolve richard of being um I wouldn't I don't really want to use the word indentured but sort of the case uh to the Habsburgs as much as his older brother would have been um be just based on on the lineage of how all right cuz the eldest the eldest brother has to inherit the the, the estates, estates and everything and else. Not to say that Richard wasn't rich or anything, and he had quite a number of estates, right? Because he's the second son of one of the richest men in, in the Habsburg Empire. But, you know, so he was very well off. Um, but so that kind of, that's that's the origin story here, right? Of of Richard uh, Richard Ichigo von Kudenhoven Kallergi. He was born of the, uh, the daughter, he was the son of, a mer- of, son of an aristocrat and a merchant woman, uh, one of Austria and the other of Japan. So that sets the tone for his um, his mixed his mixed blood kind of uh, ideologies that he had. He held a lot of these these. Well, we can get into that in a bit. Actually, yeah, for so practical. Uh, just a realism. little more on his his growing up. Um, he lived the first few years in Japan. Then they moved to the family estate in I guess what's well Sudetenland. One of them, Czech- yeah. Czechoslovakia, and he his father his father was very influential on him for the first six or seven years of his life his father died when richard was fairly young right yeah and his father always clergy was very much interested in foreign languages uh his father emphasized foreign languages and history and humanities kind of the the education you'd expect of an aristocrat his father was a polyglot heinrich was a polyglot apparently had quite a number of languages and he was that's what got him again these higher positions or helped him get these higher positions as far as being an ambassador in so many foreign countries well yeah i mean you're gonna if you're spending two years in Turkey, you're going to kind of know Turkish a little bit. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, unless you're an American State Department employee. Womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> but uh, it cl- so Richard knew, I mean, his main language was German. That's what he wrote everything in. Right. Uh, he certainly knew French and English decently. And growing up, he'd learned Hungarian and Czech and Japanese and then bits and pieces of all their stuff too, uh, which to get they some... say totaling somewhere around thirteen-ish languages. Yeah, um, but which there's no way we no nobody 13. speaks thirteen languages fluently. That's that's a myth, right? That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work that way. But uh, yeah, he was he was very competent in a bunch of languages, and he was very interested from a young age in philosophy. Yes, which is dangerous because <laughs> I mean, to take the Greek point of view, you're not supposed to, or take Plato's point of view, you're not supposed to study philosophy until you're over thirty. Clergy studied when he was at school. He was he was big into Kant and uh, I think Schopenhauer and just all the German philosophers. And he wrote his first book, Pan Europa, at twenty five, which is really young. Right. I mean, it's one might even say immodest. (laughs) Because how how are you? How do you expect to write a here? Pan Europa is a book about 
his vision for how Europe should unite and become sort of like a, a new United States. Right. And that Europe needed to do this because otherwise uh, the other great powers, you know, Russia and the British Empire and um, East Asia and America would be stronger than Europe and Europe would just be pulled apart. And he did very much care about European culture. And I think that's genuine. You see it throughout yeah. his life. He was very interested in European culture, philosophy, music, everything. He now, loved bear it. in mind that, that, that for the, re- the listener that the book Pan-Europa was written after the First World War. Okay, that's a good point. Yes, yeah. it was it was written after the First World War, but the- it was written when he was... 25 right so he almost and and he he basically was locking himself into this philosophical political position at a very young age and then continued this project for his entire life and it showed i mean he is very smart and he does he, he clearly you know was probably better he certainly almost certainly better educated than anybody nowadays is at 25 because easily <laughs> you know, you're, we we have we're at a disadvantage because you have to wade through all the lies and, and bs to get any sort of realistic picture of the world whereas back then you generally you would have a better education early on you didn't have to refute you didn't have to be like well gee um should we allow women to run countries right that wasn't like a intellectual exercise you like, had to you do. weren't dealing with a concept of like should we allow trans people in sports they didn't have that right you so. didn't have to argue waste your time with this stuff the the right. the media the literature wasn't infested with with like just disgusting gross weirdness like both sides of the elites per se understood the concept of racial science and all this other stuff as, so a, as you a could, given you could, you, know? you could get to a, a higher level faster i would argue yeah no um true. that being said at 25 you don't know what you're talking about uh <laughs> right. i mean unless you're a math uh, a savant or a right. music one of those composer, one of those two things like a mozart of some kind but at that point you that that shows itself even further along the further even earlier right into into the yeah, lifespan right. so but it, it it shows in clergy's works and, and Paneuropa just being the first of these that he wasn't really that intellectually developed because one of his first things was talking about um he he posits different like Weltteile uh continents Weltreiche world empires political powers mm-hmm. and uh Weltkulturen uh yep. The world cultures. World cultures. And the ones he lists, it's almost like he's just kind of, he's not, he hasn't really grappled with the other big thinkers of the time, like like Spangler or, um, I don't know if Chamberlain had written his book yet, uh, the Foundations of the 19th Century. I think he had. It just, but it, it, Clergy seems like a very superficial take because, or opinion, because he says, okay, the world, the continents that matter are North America, South America, Eurasia, Africa, Australia. All right, the the world empires that matter are the British Empire, Russia, America, China, Japan, whoever wins out there. Yeah, there was like the East Asian concept. Yeah, it hadn't developed yet. So you had, yeah. Yeah, and then then Europe, or Europe as a potential power. Right. Right. Should it unify, which is the whole point of Pan-Europa. It it shows throughout all of his writing and all of his thinking that he hadn't really thought about how do countries form, how do you form a strong state? How do countries how do you get a bunch of different countries to work together? What is the difference between a confederation and a real state? Like, why did the United States become a major empire, whereas Austria-Hungary in 1914, 1918 was, like, being ripped apart? Right. Like, what why, what made Austria-Hungary weak that didn't make America weak? What made, what? why did Switzerland survive as a, as a, a multilingual state? Technically multi-ethnic. M- if you maybe multi-ethnic state, yeah. whereas, like, the Holy Roman Empire didn't, I mean, 
from our position in history. Right. But like, wh- why can Switzerland can exist? I think because it's a mountain country. It's isolated. It's isolated. Like nobody has ever tried to conquer Switzerland since like the Romans. Right. Uh, I mean, arguably the Austrians, but not but, really. Yeah, that's it's the fact that it still remains as is is because it is isolated and, and geographically, you know, defensible in a sense. Not that it has a huge military or anything. No, but they don't really need it is the thing. Then Hitler made one quip about going back and dealing with what do you say? Uh, we'll we'll deal with those those guys when we get done with Russia or something. I, didn't, I think Goebbels called them uh, mountain Jews. Yeah, there's that and the thorn Which in the was side, like <laughs> very funny. Right, it's, it's comical. <laughs> I, I would imagine that more of those those sayings are probably taken out of context to be vitriolic, as compared to just kind of like a, a funny quip by yeah, Germans no, against it, other it, Germanic when you, groups. When you become a national socialist and then you go back and read national socialist stuff, you you kind of say, oh yeah, I you could we make these jokes all the time yeah you can pick out the humor i don't (laughs) he obviously wasn't serious about this he didn't it definitely didn't want to eradicate switzerland or something along those lines like that wasn't the idea right yeah but same thing with Liechtenstein, right like that's been around for quite some time as well uh, but let's let's talk about clergy's political philosophy as it you know as it developed i mean his i guess the formative thing in his political development other than his his love of languages and and being a cosmopolitan and studying philosophy honestly not it doesn't seem very deeply right the other the formative political event of his early life was the first world war and the versailles treaty and the saint germain treaty Mm. calergi like many people in europe took wilson at his word with the 14 points and with the league of nations and Mm -hmm. calergi thought that this was a great idea and that they ought to have it but then the years after the world the world war or after versailles he started to see that it wasn't being implemented anything no. like in the way that he thought it was going to be implemented. Right. It was it was more so it's like a cover, really. Like it was utilized as a cover for the the desires of other empires and to again and this kind of comes back to Calgary speaking on um after World War Two where he was upset with, with England, right? For well, trying not, Oh well, yes, we'll get, get ahead. True, true, true. So but the fact that it wasn't being implemented the way he was, d- yes, he one, one of the his big criticisms of the League of Nations was that he thought that it ought to be that each region ought to be represented as a block. So you, rather than having each country come to the United Nations and then have Czechoslovakia argue with the United States or something, Czechoslovakia ought to go to the Europe Regional Council and then that ought to argue with the North American Regional Council. And he thought that there ought to be some sort of more federal structure that would make it work better because the League of Nations was notorious for not working. Right. Because you, again, you had too many chefs in, in the kitchen for that. Right. Yeah. So after the First World War and as he's kind of seeing these these developments happen, he became very interested in the idea of uniting Europe in a, in a sort of federation and basing off the United States or Switzerland or Austria-Hungary. And so he started a, he started a movement after he wrote or he wrote the book Pan Europa and then he started a movement called the Pan Europa movement. And they had the first conference of the Pan Europa movement was was 1925 26 it was 26 in Vienna. Yeah. Yep. And he invited people from all around Europe. He'd been writing letters. I mean, this was a, a thing throughout his life. He's writing letters to people. All, he maintained correspondence with people. His networking was phenomenal. All, all over the place. But he I also mean, had a basis for this networking, obviously, given his position. Yeah, but given that he was a count and that he also had a Jewish wife who was an actress. Womp, that, womp. That, well, yeah. that was a big a big help to his networking because that got him in with all the, the literate, or not the literate, the... Uh, well, yeah, literate. Uh, you know, artsy... <laughs> 
yeah. circles. It got him in there. And his wife was a Ida Roland. She was an opera singer. Yeah. Very ugly. Uh, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> you know. But uh, but she was she was very good because she was a good secretary. Well, and and then, what all men need is a good secretary for their true. maintaining their correspondence and like not you know dropping pieces here and there. <laughs> and Clary was very good at, at not forgetting loose ends. Well, right. And now to go to go to kind of slightly dial it back about about his philosophy and why he would have married a Jewish woman and that was very into the arts and everything else like that. He had a serious value of cities. He was he he had a perspective that he was the cosmopolitan bastard. Literally, yeah. yeah. So going back to the, the title of this book, like he was very much about the concept that culture came from cities, that all the highest culture was was germinated inside of these amalgamations of the best people in one specific central area, right? Like Vienna, Berlin, London, Paris, etc. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of goes into again what we kind of discussed and touched a little bit earlier about his his understanding of aristocracy based on whether it was rustic, which is obviously a rural concept, or the urbanite uh, element of aristocracy, which was the city-dwelling aristocracy. Um, and he very much so envied, or, or, or um, I don't want to say envy, but he uh, he exemplified that element of, of the, the urban aristocracy. He really loved that concept, which is why he would marry a Jewish woman that was into opera and all this other stuff. He thought all the culture of Europe came from the cities. Which, he was a complete snob, is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, very much and, so, yeah. And, and But then that, that came to that point where uh, he also was very much in the concept of technology, right? Like they talked about technology a lot in almost all of his writings, about how important it was that Europe maintains uh, an industrial and technological advantage uh, over the other empires, right? Like between Russia, he, he considered Russia's economy to be anarchical. And he also compared that to Europe at the time being anarchical because of all the different independent nations uh-huh, were right. there and their technological differences and yada, yada, yada. But he said in order to compete with things like, again, uh, with America specifically, or, or England for that matter, that Europe itself had to have a technological advantage of some kind, industrial advantage. Um, and that also was part of his conception of why East Asia was eventually going to rise to be a, a, a world empire, is because they had the, the populations, they had the resources to industrialize in a way that Europe honestly couldn't. Right, and, and pretty much in all of these things, his thinking is tracking with everybody else's thinking. Hitler was saying a lot of the same things. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Mackinder was... Name one. Maybe, I don't know if he was popular <laughs> yeah. back then, but he, he had been writing the 1890s. He was saying a lot of the same things. America's a, a, a center of power, Europe, East Asia, like... Yeah, this is obvious to everybody, right? And so, so he's not—he's not going off the wall here. He's not profound, also. You know, it's not yeah. like he's not like he's—he's—he's he's, he's going off the wall and becoming a a a what like a like a prophet or something yeah. about but this. This, this is this is all taken for granted, but right, Kalergi versus Hitler, it's an interesting comparison if we mm-hmm. go into that for a second because they both had uh, lived as young men in Vienna. Kalergi was going to the operas and going to the the nice hotel bars. Uh, Kalergi loved hotels. He always yeah. stayed. He always stayed at the Ritz Carlton. The fanciest hotels. Oh, yes, that was like his one expense. He actually was pretty parsimonious about food and drink. <laughs> he didn't really eat a lot of fancy food or drink. He mostly just spent money on hotels. But anyway, so he was living the glitzy life, and, and Hitler was, sleeping, Hitler on was in the park. sleeping on a bench in a park, <laughs> <laughs> and the, being the duality of man here. <laughs> 
And yeah, maybe the evil Michelin tossed him a, a what are they, the Reichsmark at the right, Reichsmark. <laughs> a taller yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Hitler fought in World War One. Clergy didn't. Right. I mean, they almost had almost exactly opposite life experiences. Hitler was poor. Clergy was rich. Hitler fought in the war. Clergy didn't. Yeah. Hitler had the grace to take on until his 30s before he started writing books. Clergy didn't. It's Yeah, it's fascinating to see the differences um, in leadership, too. But yeah. they, they came to they came to fairly similar conclusions about Europe and that Europe needed to be a world empire if it was to survive yep. as a, as a culture and Clergy's idea, you know what it's la what's lacking in Clergy is he thought that you could just get all the rich people together and then come to an agreement and then you would have a strong, right? Everything works. At that everything point. works, which you, know, you understand where he's coming from given his background, but he doesn't seem to have, grappled with the idea of what about like the whole problem of violence or of people wanting to fight each other he doesn't understand the warrior warrior spirit like the way hitler did right and he talks about pacifism a lot in a negative connotation but doesn't really give an alternative to pacifism which is a strange thing i, I thought reading through all of his work is well, that he was he was involved with the pacifist movement but he right. wasn't a he was not a pacifist like right he, he, he was smart enough to realistic enough to say well war is a thing and right. we're gonna have it but at the same time he didn't really have a solution for how we were going to avoid war or conduct it if it was to occur or anything else like that he, he, he just kind of said pacifism is not the good route to take and that then that's it he didn't really go he didn't delve highly into the the other side of things he, he called people out for being warmongers uh he, he called um he, he said that that even uh the the basic voter that voted for a pacifist, you know, politician or whatever. That and if the if the politician they voted for was half-hearted in their pacifism, that the voter himself was a warmonger or a half warmonger because of things like this. And so, you know, this was um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so he he really kind of he had like a whole a whole chapter on, in practical realism um, or pra sorry practical idealism about this this pacifistic element of why he was criticizing pacifism. But at the same time, there is no passage about the antithesis about how do you go about actually enacting pacifism in a way that that is that is viable. He only criticized the people that were in a sense hindering pacifism or or how the how the pacifists were warmongers. Um, so there was kind of this this. Um, contradictory element i would say to his his conceptions of pacifism uh to where he didn't he didn't necessarily like it but he also hailed it as being the best thing in the world and it was a very it that was a strange read for me whenever we were, i was going through um, specifically practical idealism uh on on that and also the emancipation of women yeah, we can go on forever uh -huh. right you know this about all sorts of uh all sorts of and not to say they were contradictory but again nuances uh about how people just simply thought at the time you know about how they they conducted themselves in politics and his idea as we go back to your point he he didn't really seem to have a really good developed grasp on the philosophical elements of politics i would imagine what um so he started the pan europa movement and he tried. He basically was able to get at his first conference in Vienna. He was able to get people from all over, all over Europe, yeah. and, and we're talking big names. Like I think Einstein was there. Yeah, he was. Thomas Mann. Yeah, uh, Churchill uh, was Churchill there. Yeah, yeah, Churchill was at that one. He had all. He had all the big names of Europe, and people commented on that in the press. They were like, "This is amazing. We've never seen a conference like this in Europe. A, con a continental congress, unlike any other." Which it almost brings up the question of 
like was Kalergi an absolute genius or was it just that everybody was thinking along the same lines and he I mean maybe this is a genius he just he saw where everything was going and right. said all right let's get everybody in a room and just do this it's I think it's a little bit of both honestly the fact that he did have some foresight to that of like okay this is the direction everybody's thinking of let's collect everybody in one room and talk about it yeah. right on top of that though there was a bit, I would say there's a bit of luck and a little bit of providence. The fact that, yes, he is just a count who has all these connections, has all this great networking at his foot, and he just kind of took the initiative and did what because he, he, he was His doing. was not the only game in town. There were other right. movements that were sort of going along the same lines. There was the European Culture Bund yeah. that was, I guess they had conferences where they tried to bring people together to talk about art and literature. But it wasn't focused, this is the thing, is that it wasn't focused on the concept of, of not to say a one-world government, a one-Europe government, right? Like it was that, was that was, I think, what made it unique, is that he, he really took the concept of a pan-European leadership to its, its not natural conclusion, but at the time, its, its supposed conclusion. Yeah. So there were, I think there were three pan-Europa conferences before World War II. There was uh, Vienna... Then uh, they had one in London, didn't they? Uh, they had Vienna. It was the first big one, and then I think they had one at Berlin. If I'm remembering right, Berlin. I think without that's what triggered Hitler to ban. Well, also the annexation of Austria too. He banned obviously Kalergi from the the Reich. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a funny story about that. Kler, the night of the Machtergreifung, Kalergi uh, <laughs> was at a Kalergi was having a meeting with some other internationalists at this hotel go figure always at the hotel <laughs> right yeah but the nazis had come in and taken like the main meeting rooms first and the hotel <laughs> staff insisted that clergy and the for their own safety they had to use the side entrance <laughs> no, <laughs> just humiliated <laughs> you know <it's laughs> they had to go talk about their internationalist conspiracies in the closet while uh like hitler and and all the the cool guys like were hanging around in the lobby right <laughs> it's like the ultimate humiliation and just... he did he fled vienna at, at that point in time uh, yeah he, he which he, i'm pretty he sure he went to london if that's the uh... no no he no so oh remember he, he so he goes after the nazis took over in germany he ran away to vienna back to vienna yeah and then he was there for a little while then there was the Anschluss, yeah. and his account of it is in um it was Conf- in uh, right. Confum Europa, yeah, is is hilarious because he he and his wife had to flee and they they couldn't drive because ne- they were they never learned to drive. I mean, Hitler didn't either, so <laughs> well, right, I guess yeah. it was kind of a normal thing back then. <laughs> right, it was like cool people don't drive, yeah. so you had to have a driver, and they couldn't find one. I think the Swiss embassy lent them a car and a driver <laughs> to get out, and. The driver at one point realized that he didn't have his passport or something and was like, oh, can we go back to your house? And so they had to like <laughs> drive back somewhere. He had to hop out, run inside and get the get the passport. Meanwhile, like the stormtroopers are like raging and the German army and all the Austrian Nazis are like partying in the streets. And everyone's <laughs> like and he and it's it's just this funny image because the way he describes it, all these people are, all the Germans and all the Nazis are all really happy. And he's like scared out of his mind and he thinks that they're all going to like lynch him like just right there. Right. Honestly, everybody was more worried about just taking the next shot of Jaeger. So like, they, yeah, no, they nobody really cares. Cared. It's like, dude, nobody cares about your stupid little thing. Yeah. They're just going to let you go. Now, if they were smart, they would have, they would have lynched him. But yes, right. <laughs> but if they weren't know. such nice 
polite guys. Right, they yeah. Uh, Dunkirk. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he got a he got away, drove to the border, and all the other rats fled Vienna at the yeah. same time, and they all f- fled to. Uh, and it's another thing. It's like the National Socialists that the border guards they didn't stop him. It's not like they just like you know oh it's it's Gallagher. Well, I'm know? sure it was still the Austrian army technically well, or whatever. Yeah, still, but, but the they, fa- no, there were. I think they, the Gestapo was chasing him. And they weren't able to get him, and he and hundreds of other Austrian like fat cats <laughs> ended up in Pressburg, uh, Bratislava. Oh right, right, right. And, that's and he he bitches Hungary. about it in the book. He bitches that like, oh, oh we got to the Ritz Carlton and just there was no room for us because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the other people were fleeing at the same time. So so yeah, they had to have drinks in the lobby with all the the plebs, uh, all the plebs. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had to so then the way he fled is he he drove he had to like drive around he he had to drive clockwise around austria to get to switzerland and he was buds with mussolini sort of and mussolini was kind enough to yeah. send him a uh a, a couple or a few black shirts to escort him through italian territory right and then on an aside just so everybody knows at this time there was a political divide between national socialism and fascism and, hit, and mussolini at the time was fearful that during the anschluss that they would go after southern tyrol and get that back from the right there was War. some question as to whether austrian right. or whether germany and italy might go to war exactly so there would have been a reason or not there would not have been a reason to co- uh, collaborate or co- yeah, collaborate with hitler on stopping calorie from going through italian territory so we got to switzerland and then he went to france you know it's kind of like reading those holocaust books (laughs) like about the girl who flees one country and then gets then the german army like crashes into that country and then she has to flee to another country uh it was kind of like those (laughs) except with the rich carlton (laughs) yeah except except yeah except except he's staying at the ritz carlton they're driving what is it were they driving a rolls royce everywhere i think so yeah it was a very expensive (laughs) car at the time it was it was not low profile let's put it that way there's nothing he did was low profile (laughs) um so yeah then when uh, the 1940 invasion of France happened, he fled to Spain, had to drive, well, had to get a driver to take him and eat a Roland to the Spanish border. The Spaniards let him in again. Yeah. Uh, lack of solidarity uh, and yeah, lack w- of foresight. Thanks. Franco was a, yeah. Yeah. We're, it we're was, talk it was about Franco. It was but, an interesting situation. <laughs> uh, and then he, clergy spent a few months or a few weeks like crying about how he couldn't get a flight to America because the line was so long because all the other, you know, fat cats again wanted to get out of europe and get to america but he managed i forget exactly what it was but it, it talks about it in the book he was able to get out of spain yeah by basically just jumping to the front of the line he went to london at some point i can't remember when it was though there was some point where he was taking refuge there uh i don't know he might was... he definitely he he went i know he went and he he definitely was in london after the war and yeah. i think he might have also visited or met churchill before the war because I know he because I know he he spoke with Churchill quite a bit before in the conferences, um, right? That, and then well, definitely after the war though, that's where his big headbutting with Churchill came into into play. Yeah, um, because again, he 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 saw that Churchill, again, this is where he comes into the concept where he, he thought that England was too um like in, just kind of ingrained well, with this, its it, own empire. There's this question to the in the Pan Europa movement of wh- where does England fit into all this? Right, exactly. Because is England part of Europe or is England the British Empire and right. is it separate? And can we bring England into Europe or does England belong with America? Or does England want to simply unite Europe under itself? And that was mm. another thing because again, like while 
that would have been the same concept that that Hitler had with Germany is that you're uniting Europe under Germany and Calgary had a big issue with this which is why he didn't you know he didn't want to have one dominant nation in Europe he wanted to have as as you pointed out earlier a cobbled effect or a stitched together empire right of all these different European states and he kind of was seeing that England didn't want that either that England wanted to have a Europe united under England itself right yeah. as, as making it part of the British Empire and and he even he even specifically said I uh, quote that he was worried that it was going to become part of the Commonwealth. And he, he, there were sort of several iterations of it too, because early on in Pan-Europa, it was Germany that he was, he focusing on mainly Germany and then in France kind of secondarily. But then when the Nazis took over Germany, he was like, okay, well, we have to have France and Italy have to be the core here. Germany's out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe we can get Austria, France, Italy, and then that's like a good core to work around. But then when... Hitler took 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 it all right and made fortress Europe you know he had to flee to America and then he got set up when he got to America he got set up pretty quickly with a a cushy job at Columbia wasn't that his wife's doing though because again her connections with the New York uh people well yeah he he was welcome anywhere he went true so he had a a nice job at Columbia while he was in America still doing the pan pushing the pan Europa movement still staying in contact with everybody and he tried he was trying to get a, a meeting with Roosevelt I don't think he ever did. He met with he did meet with Truman, if mm. I remember right. He did meet the the president, but he wasn't able to early on get that meeting. And because he also had not established those ties prior to any of this too, which was a big deal for him, right? You know, because like again, he was focusing specifically on Europe, not a he, the, at the time there was no such concept as a as a one world government. Like that wasn't really a thing. Like the, yeah, the League of Nations existed, but as you said earlier, he had a lot of issues with that. Yeah, um, I knew he. Early on, William Donovan, the head of the OSS, who I, I don't know if you know anything about him. I've heard he was a complete slime bag. Uh, <laughs> don't he, say. he was. Pu- I mean, yeah, you're a spy chief. What else are you going to be? Right. <laughs> uh, was was pushing Clergy, and then he kind of backed off it. Clergy was was back and forth when he was in America in terms of was he in favor, was he out of favor. Right. But he he was able to sort of set things up in his time in America to have the post-war situation be what he wanted it to be uh so he was talking to churchill and he was sort of getting putting his propaganda out there about how he wanted the un to be set up because remember churchill and roosevelt were setting up the united nations at the time and the russians were collaborating with that um so all this all this was going on and clergy was still like hammering his points about how we want a a united europe because he was he was fearful that europe would have been left out of this which and he he was for right. the most part was right yeah and so it's his big his biggest friend in europe became during the war years or in like just immediately after the war was de gaulle right because that was he the had last this pro- he had this problem with, he had this problem with britain yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah where he wasn't really he was buzz with churchill and churchill always had him over for for drinks and stuff but tea <laughs> and and well yeah and churchill was always chomping on a cigar and, well, and, right, yeah. and downing whiskey that's yeah, God. <laughs> Clergy was more abstemious, but Churchill was. We could we could go on for days about uh, Churchill. <laughs> Churchill was, yeah. Mm, God. But Clergy did did keep his options open, and so he was in in uh, correspondence with De Gaulle in Algiers in the war years, and then afterwards, at, immediately after the war, he started trying to build rebuild Pan Europa mainly around France, but 
his main push was Franco-German reconciliation. Right, which was extremely difficult at the time. Yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Like, yeah, we just wrecked your country. So come Sorry. back and, yeah, uh, do all this stuff, even though we're going to, like, you know, destroy your entire infrastructure. Because, <laughs> again, that was, again, part of part of Calgary's concern was the concept of technology and the Ruhr Valley was the big deal for Germany at the time for production and it was obliterated you know at the behest of the English and and, uh, and American uh, air forces so did did how did it how did it all turn out did well from we've gone we've kind of covered 30 years from basically World War One to the end of World War Two right Clary still had another 30 years of life. Right. And this is when actual the this is where the European Union starts to come into play. And I'll just say and, from from reading the book, like, honestly, the period from World War One to the end of World War Two is the most interesting. Yeah. The last it's probably the last like 75 or 100 pages of the book are less interesting. But um, the because, thing is, that because his, it's like, really it's, getting down to like minutia of just true. trying to like hammer out the details. But it does come into the concept of, of what is his legacy and how does that play into the world that we are now living in with the European Union? You know, yeah, right, he, he got what he wanted. It, 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 well, theoretically, mostly, he did. Yeah, yeah, mostly the concept, I think that he got the names that he wanted for things. But that's not necessarily that because, again, we, that's I think that that uh, that can be even a, a bigger and longer conversation is what is the legacy of Calgary as compared to Calgary's initial you know, uh, inroads into Pan-Europa and how did that become the European Union, which seemingly, according to Calgary's writings itself, are almost two completely different things as far as what is actually being created and what's right, well, being what's, done. What's the difference? Well, that's that, that's the thing. Is is as I mean, as we've got a earlier, European Confederation. Well, we do to an extent, but it's how it's being done, and that's the thing with the immigration, the concept again, the Eurasian Negroid element. How did that actually play out to the lower orders? What's the deal with the immigration issue? How much influence do Jews actually now play in the European Union compared to Europeans? Right, like that's a big issue uh, specifically. And, and kind of just the the degradation of, of the liberal world order into the degeneracy that we see now as compared to Calgary's real vision for European culture. Well, see, well, he certainly was a culture snob. And right. I think he would be appalled at the degradation of culture. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. And I think he also would have hated the European Union or what what NATO, European Union, the arrangements that exist today, because these are these states are just a vassal of American power. Right, exactly. Um, so and that's he, exactly what he was trying to prevent. Right. And in a sense, that's why Pan-Europa didn't actually come to fruition. The European Union is, in a sense, completely different than what Pan-Europa was supposed to be because Pan-Europa was supposed to be. So Clergy got co-opted. Yeah, <laughs> he did, really. Because you know, like Europe was supposed to be sovereign. Europe is clearly, as of today, not sovereign. There's militaries from both the English Empire and the American Empire throughout Europe. Uh, you know, like Germany is still an occupied country, right? So, right. and I mean, England isn't really an empire, but like it's right. kind of like an adjunct to the American sea At, empire. It, yeah, it, it fell out after after England lost its empire and fell out of favor with itself. Essentially, like it just became a, a puppet state in a sense to America, and then. By by that way of being a puppet facilitated America's domination of Western Europe, and as of current, we are now seeing a resurgence. Uh, then then Europe, because obviously Europe is is being now torn apart between uh, the Russian Empire and the American Empire, and yeah. that's exactly what Calgary and, didn't and, want to and, have. and he was. I read uh, where did I read it? I read a quote of his. Or there's several quotes to this effect where he he delineates Europe as being no farther than the eastern borders of Romania and Poland, right? Which 
dude explicitly excludes the Ukraine. Right. <laughs> uh, it's pretty clear on that point. And, and the, actually, the actually, Baltics, too, which is surprising. No, he, he actually says he wanted to have... He thought it was a better idea to have buffer states. Well, like, it's a treat, smart idea. Basically, Poland, Finland, Romania would yeah. be buffer states, would be neutral, be given like their own, have allowed to have their own foreign policy as long as they didn't like become vassals a, of a Russia. vassal of Russia or of Europe, yeah. America. They had to maintain their sovereignty in a sense. Yeah. As as we see right now, that that his vision is not playing out whatsoever. At all. Amer- America is just using Europe as a tool to creep into right. you know, the well, far it's NATO. East. NATO's doing. They're utilizing it as, as a weapon for NATO in a sense, you know, yeah. or however that that plays out. So yeah, it's. I, I would say that uh, Calgary had, a, you, had an, you, an interesting vision, but it just hasn't come. Well, to you were okay. So that was the geopolitical, but you were you were just bringing up some of the the more social aspects, mm-hmm. like. You know, geopolitically, yes, Clergy's vision has not come to fru- has not come true because the European states are just vassals of Washington, right? For all intents and purposes, I mean, the, I, pe- to go off on a on a side thing here, people talk about, oh, oh, could Berlin, could Berlin, could the Germans like become get into a block with Russia because they get all their energy from Russia, and that's what Washington's afraid of? To my mind, it's not not even a question. Like that's just not. There is no way like Germany is too tied to America and too much under the thumb of American power for that to even really be a question. It was obvious that as soon as the Ukraine war broke out, that Germany was going to have to cut off Nord Stream 2 and not not participate with Russia in that, which is foolish for Germany. That's the thing is like the, the, the it, right. It is in their interests, right. perhaps. Well, that's the, the thing is like nothing that the European Union is doing is within the European Union's interest. That's the yeah, issue, I'm not I'm not yeah. saying it's not in Germany's interest to yeah. work with Russia. But I'm saying their elites are so compromised and so oh, yeah. they're total slaves of Western of American power. There is, there's no fear. There's no fear of them becoming part of a yeah. Russian bloc. There just isn't at, at all. And but the thing is, had if Europe was to become sovereign, like Calgary would have envisioned, you know, Germany would easily because of its output, industrial output, again, as, as Calgary talked about technology, would naturally become the leader of the European Union, as it kind of already is, because it does have, and I hate to use this term because it is the most absolute outrageous concept to even put as far as a metric for nations, the GDP is higher than all the other European nations. So, you know, like you have the you have these these aspects where Germany would normally become sovereign, but at, again, as you to your point, their government is so absolutely cucked that there's no way that they would ever become part of a Russian bloc. There's yeah. just no way. So that's the the geopolitical aspect. His Clergy's vision didn't happen. But looking at the social aspect, what he wanted, he wanted, um, he loved European culture. That didn't happen. Right. Uh, European culture is <laughs> completely destroyed. But as far as immigration, though, it would seem, I mean, based on that, his one infamous quote, right. it would seem that that is coming true. That, well, to an extent, but he also mentioned that at the time, Europe was considered by him to be overpopulated. And the fact that they're increasing their population even more so now is in direct antithesis to what he was discussing. Hmm. So while I'm, what I'm assuming that he meant by a Eurasian Negroid grouping or whatever was that, yeah, there could have been some amalgamation. And, and this is this gets into the more esoteric elements of Calgary, this, this bit of the conversation, because he did mention quite a bit um, – you know, to about ancient Egypt and how that uh, that power structure worked as far as who was ruling it and as compared to the lower orders, lower orders being this this kind of amalgamation of, of racial groups uh, that that were 
again, not it, it kind of evolved into that too, uh, you know, they, they're smart enough to work, but too stupid to vote kind of thing. Right. right. I mean, he thought of ancient Egypt, and he's probably right that ancient Egypt for the last 1,500 or 1,000 years of its history was a uh, an overclass of intellectual priest types and then a vast underclass of fellaheen, yeah. uh, mixed, <laughs> mixed race fellaheen, even better. They were, uh, Who too, were completely yeah. controllable. And, all, and almost eth- multi-ethnic as well, based on the, uh, the, the Nubians and uh, you had uh, the Hittite groups and everything else that had come into Egypt over the course of the, of the times. You had this this mixture that had, had, had occurred. And he wanted to, to... He thought that that was like a good political model, which... In a sense, the concept of keeping uh, the lower classes—I hate to say this—but like in their place, right by genetics, that was kind of the way to do it: is to maintain it, like, because he didn't. Well, yeah, have if you if you don't have a mobility. if you don't have a warrior aristocrat elite, you have an intellectual nerd faggot elite, right? Your people aren't going to respect you, and they're going to overthrow you yeah. unless you can breed them into a bunch of self-hating mongrels right and that that plays into a lot of the racial science that was happening at the turn of the century that not just calorie but everybody was in, in the understanding of right it just comes down to how do you play that out how like what it's either you're going to go to what the german concept was was to make everybody elevated and and to be like this elite uh aryan you know racial group yeah, where yeah. it was like a, a mass movement towards uh you we're going to improve ourselves we're evolution. not we're not as it was hitler basically put it we're not as uh racially well developed and as pure as the americans but we're gonna get there <laughs> <laughs> damn that's a say how that went <laughs> you know but that's kind of the thing but it's just the exact opposite of what they tell you he yeah. said you know it's like hitler was clear that he thought uh the americans of the early 20th century were like genetically better and the reason for that being is because they were at uh, this is going to sound strange but that they were a mixed race not that they were mixed between multiple actual races that we would denote now but at the, between european but races. they were the best elements of Europe. yeah it was the best of the french of the germans of the english and the italians and all that other stuff combined into an amalgamation of one one truly a hybrid race of europeans and i think honestly that is probably what calorie was getting at more so i mean he did say negroid though he it, did it's hard to it's yeah, hard to tiptoe is, around that, that one it's true right the eurasian negroid part of it you know like that's to be fair though i'm wondering if he didn't want that element simply because it would have brought them down to be a deliberate lower class as compared to the upper classes right knowing again from his background he did have that that concept from his grandfather that that Uh the lower orders are just play things for the aristocracy and everything else of that nature so that he he did see it it divide and that's not really a a far cry either from from british philosophy either Uh, we have like um I forgot what the, what the specific area was, but they, they looked at the lower orders almost as a different race as compared to the upper classes. And that's that that's a, a play out throughout a lot of uh, European philosophy coming into the racial well, sciences. Everybody, as you were saying, like everybody pretty much agreed that this is how things work. I, I, the main difference between Kalergi and Hitler was Kalergi was like, this is good. Right. Hitler was like, this is bad. Yeah, and we need to do something to repair this and Sp- or And then this. Spangler was saying... This is going to happen anyway. This is inevitable. <laughs> like, this is good. This is bad. This is inevitable. So you have three different takes on history. <laughs> and yeah, so, and but that's kind of the thing. And all the, to be fair, though, I absolutely don't think what Calgary meant was what's going on right now. Like the forced integration of it, the, the difference in culture was a big deal. The destruction of European culture. Um, 
also just just the rampant amount of immigration. The, yeah. the, he, I don't think Calgary wanted to replace Europeans wholesale like they're doing currently. Um, and it has gone completely out of control. And I mean, let's be real here. It is because of Jewish taint on this ideology. Uh, they have a, a complete disdain for Europe or what, I mean, they, clergy, what they call it, Edom, right? Edom has to be destroyed in the Jewish mindset. And this is one of the ways they're destroying it. But clergy it. certainly liked Jews and he, well, right, he yes. thought... But he, he did, only he liked did them want because them because they were a hybrid. He thought them to be an elite hybrid race. But correct me if I'm wrong. But he mm. thought that he thought that the the European elite ought to be heavily Jewish. Yes, or he at did. least at least cosmopolitan. Well, in, in you know not in yeah. the the in the real meaning of the word of worldly and and maybe a little bit mixed cosmopolitan, right. highly educated. Because or Calgary kind of saw Jews as not really being like while obviously they were their own race, but he he really he really idealized the Jew as being. A, an example of what a highbrow mixed racial group could be, mm-hmm. right? Like that they were like the elite hybrids is what he was looking at them as and that he wanted something similar for Europe. And, and, and it, it makes sense that if, if you're a person like Clergy who just idolizes being smart and not, you don't think highly of people who are tough or are brave, right. you're the, the priest type, not the warrior type. And he also comes you're from gonna, this- You're gonna like worship jews right exactly but and on top of that he himself was of mixed race origin right so like he naturally he's going to gravitate towards okay who is the most elite of these mixed race groups and in at the time people he was an aspiring jew right exactly (laughs) you know and another reason why he married into jewishness because that was something that he desired for his offspring he he twice married jewesses his first and i believe his third wife oh i didn't yeah i don't know yeah i know one of his wives wasn't um (laughs) So he, he was like, oh, that doesn't work too well. <laughs> and he went back to his, his old ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think that that, again, that was co-opted. That's the whole concept of what is going on currently is that it is, it's as, as most things that the Jews corrupt is that they take something that is fundamentally understandable by most people and they run with it to an extreme. Speaking of, so it's just funny. We're talking about Kalergi being mixed race. It's just funny because his elder brother and his younger brother were like total Nazis, right? Um, uh, as Mischlings in the Third Reich, his well, actually even before the Third Reich, his younger brother—I forget his name—the third son, I right below him, off, yeah. fought in the Austro-Hungarian army and was on the Italian front uh, in the last days of the war, and like had been a you know fairly successful junior officer, right? As a Mischling, well, <laughs> imagine, <it's>, imagine like <laughs> <laughs> Battle of uh, Caporetto or Vittorio Veneto, and you like. You know, you like jump into this trench and you're like, you see a dude in Austrian uniform. He looks like a Jap. Yeah. <laughs> What's your Bro. name? Uh, <laughs> Hands up. Hold yeah. on. <laughs> Where are you Everyone from? Everyone stop shooting. <laughs> <laughs> Just call like a ceasefire real quick. <laughs> this, we shell need to talk on. about what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are they importing mercenaries? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But but he then this the same brother in World War Two was on the, the staff of von Kleist. Well, it makes sense because the Germans and Japanese were allied. It would have made more sense for Calgary to join. Well, yeah, it made more Reich. sense in World War Two, sure. Yeah. But I don't even remember this from the book. I thought found this hilarious. Kalergi made a, I guess it was a radio diatribe, and he, ta- he trash-talked Hitler and said Hitler was a bad military leader. Hitler got really angry. <laughs> you don't say. And fired all of Clergy's relatives from anywhere within the German bureaucracy. So <laughs> Clergy's younger brother lost his job as a as a staff officer with von Kleist and had to like go home and, and chill out for the rest of the war. 
And then Clergy's probably smart though. Older brother <laughs> was it had inherited the estate back in in, in Czech well, Sudetenland. Yeah. And funny story, Clergy had back in the twenties tried to prevent his elder brother from inheriting because he thought his elder brother was insane. Um, <laughs> didn't go over. The elder brother got it. But then during the right. war, his elder brother was super pro-Nazi, uh, like would just invite all over all the Nazi uh, local uh, officials and had big parties with them. And <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's like, mm. it's just funny because the you have a man two, within one family. The, the elder brother, <laughs> the younger brother are both the same exact racial genetic background yeah, yeah it turned out okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then richard just pfft. right but i think that that goes to again the the delving into specific elements of philosophy right and like how how there is some truth to the concept of nurture over nature in those elements right like obviously nature is a foundation of everything but there is a truth to the concept of nurture involved in this you know it's not just 100 percent nature um of how one is raised i think the concept that you were older in this in this like you know that that, that him being the older one and getting the 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 boon of the Austro-Hungarian Empire bestowed upon him with the estates and everything else from his father Heinrich he was able to more so position himself in a way that would have that he would have seen the national socialist uprising as being a, a favorable thing that he could get himself involved into because again Hitler was reinstating aristocracy that had been deposed after the first world war and the revolution right like there was well, I wasn't reinstating yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. let's just be clear right. to anybody listening. Like, yeah, it's not. Right. He Hitler, like... Hitler was against the aristocracy, but he put up with them. Well, because like there was a value he saw in in their in their their bloodlines and all this other stuff. Like, there was there was a, a value to the concept of, of governance, right? That he saw there with the rustic aristocracy or the aristocracy in general, compared to just strictly voting. Because obviously, we know that that wasn't like the the base motto was democracy was not their mo. So there was this there was a, a value that the elder Calergy would have seen to the um to the rise of national socialism and being put into the position where my estates are not going to be taken away because again like the 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 weimar revolution after the fall of, of the kaiser was extremely anti-aristocracy right anti-monarchy and all this yeah, other yeah. stuff so hitler being more in favor was the better way to go than the the new uh, liberal democratic revolutionaries that were that were just it was better than the better than supporting Masaryk. Right, exactly. Well, I, mean, like, I guess he was well, dead at the time, but whoever was in charge of the point being though is, 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 is they were people were being removed from their ancestral positions, and it was better to go with people that were not going to remove you from this position. Yeah. I'll throw in a couple more things we we skipped over on Clergy's youth and upbringing um, that probably go into why he did the things he did. One was he was a big Freemason. Oh, we forgot we, to we, mention yeah, that we mentioned entirely. He's a huge <laughs> Freemason, and a lot of his associates were Freemasons. Yeah, and you know we, Not in, our, in another podcast, theories, yeah, we, right? we talked about Raymer and how Otto Ernst Raymer, in one of his books, criticizes the Freemasons as being responsible for World War One. And you know, from our perspective in 2022, I mean, Freemasons are just kind of like weirdos who maybe have a club somewhere like to wear robes and do weird right. shit, but. <laughs> I mean, back then, I don't know about now, but back then, it was clearly a very powerful or yeah. influential organization. It was a networking group, for sure. And and Hitler was very much against the Freemasons. I mean, oh, yeah. just because, you know, not just the Freemasons, but any secret society right. is antithetical to the idea of national socialism. Right. Because how can you have a, a secret society can't be an elite? An elite has to lead openly and overtly, you know, in, in Hitler's a, a true, idea. Well, and, a true elite, right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with Hitler, as, yeah. as I think we all do. Yeah. So 
the Freemasons are just like this inverted backwards elite. It's fake LARP elite. Hide in the shadows. Yeah. yeah, you're you're people are being promoted based on how much ass they can kiss. Yeah. <laughs> um, not on how noble they are, how worthy they are. And so necessarily an organization like the Freemasons is going to lead to is going to foster or develop an elite that is not noble conniving not not worthy of being followed right and that's not gonna but they have they have to connive against their population in order to rule that's the big issue there that's i I would imagine why this uh this concept why freemasonry was so popular well not just that but like why calgary's ideas were so popular specifically and that that oh okay we can just breed down our population so that they're too stupid because these elites even these elites like we're realizing then as they are now that they're not worthy to lead right and that the only way they can stay in power is by terrorizing everybody else well and they they even said that specifically in like one of the latest uh congresses of the world economic forum where they're like oh all these elites are are getting together but the problem is that nobody trusts the elites well no shit no one trusts the elites like you know they're they're a bunch of conniving they're a bunch of conniving conspiracy theorists so of course no one's going to trust them on the ground level so they have to breed us down so that we don't do not not that we don't trust them it's that we're too stupid to trust them or trust or not trust them yeah and that's kind of i think where they're taking the perverted element of calgary's ideas and putting it into practice the other element from his early days uh high school he went to the thuraceneum there was the high it was a high school named after maria theresa the oh, oh, oh of, of austria hungary the, the uh the enlightened absolutist monarch of of hungary back yeah in the yeah and it, the high school was like it was it was like Georgetown. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> it was one of those schools, or I don't know, Deerfield or Hotchkiss or something. Yeah. It was one of these, except more elite than those, um, because <laughs> Ooh, people back yeah. then cared about right. more about this stuff. Real academic. All the, I don't know. I think it. Was, I think it was the school in Austria-Hungary mm. um, that if you were rich and you were part of the elite. And I, I think a hundred years before they'd allowed in merchant children, but <laughs> they were still they were still right. pretty pretty top tier, and that's where he went to school. And so he, actually, I kind of feel sympathy for him because I had a similar high school experience. Of, I mean, not an elite school. I just I was it's higher. It was there. a very diverse right. environment. <laughs> um, and you know, diversity can work in a fairly controlled environment like it has you to don't, be a you lab don't notice the obvious way. problems but then you have to be able to abstract right. and look at okay well politically is, this might be working but is it working as well as other political arrangements right then you know no yeah, but no, clarity not. clarity wasn't really one to think deductively well <laughs> he did think deductively i think Sorry, it, it was circumstantially deductive he 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 looked i mean the point i'm trying to make is he looked at his high school he looked at the ethnic diversity and even to an extent the racial diversity right um because there were people from outside austria hungary there were indians and japanese right some of the classes but again it's the elites of those groups at the time right it wasn't just your base and that's the issue currently where it's just like we'll just import mass mass people from foreign countries and then it's just gonna work well no you're you're literally importing the worst of the worst but yeah you can have diverse you can sort of have a school of elites from all over the world but if you're gonna stick low class uh or like basically everybody every white and black and hispanic together in schools oh. randomly there's just gonna be racial hatred it's fighting. chaos it's yeah. gonna be total chaos and the whites right. are gonna come out the worst of it right exactly because they're the, they're the ones suffering it because it's in their own nations and that's kind of the, the big issue is that you have these um 
that, well, uh, you already pointed out, like that's that's kind of the issue is that you have this this understanding that oh, diversity is great only in the context of it being the elites of those diverse groups as compared to the lowest. And this thing, most of the people coming over as immigrants are not anywhere near the elites. They are the bottom tier because even the best people from those countries know not to leave their own homelands. They have it good in their own homelands because they're making their homelands better than what they would have been. That's the problem with well, when you drain. define best, what you mean is the most like moral and right. responsible people from Nigeria or whatever right. they stay are, staying, home. are staying home because they want to improve their own homeland. Yeah, because they love their country. Whereas they the love crassest their people. and most greedy, yeah. perhaps the most capable, but Still the, the least moral right. are The most are psychologically leaving. dysgenic people will, will come across you know, the seas to, 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 to capitalize on, on the, the free gibs of, of foreign Right, there nations. might be a few. I mean, you might have a few who come. Yeah, but like uh, the, who, you might have a few who come to make money, send it home, and then return home. You do see that. Yeah, but, but, it's but a, as the a percentage trend, is very, very low. You know? Yeah. That's, uh, I think, the unfortunate downfall of, of that's, the, that's the rise of Calgary's concept of Pan-Europa and then the, uh, the sin of the European Union now is, is to corrupt his ideologies. All right, let's. Uh, I want to close out here, but we ask them ask a couple questions. We can talk these through. Do you admire Kalergi, William? All right, so we'll just, we'll just question by question then. All right, so do I admire Kalergi? Um, yes and no. That's that's a very that's that's a that's a hard one. I I do admire. I do admire how on point he is with a lot of a lot of things specifically Uh with the racial science element the concept of of his uh rustic and urban aristocracy uh, aspects and you know we didn't really delve too much into that as far as the minutia of it but as far as how he describes how he describes these these interworkings of uh relations i yeah i think he's i think he's very much uh an underappreciated philosopher quote unquote philosopher philosopher i'll say political thinker political analyst i suppose would be a way to go but yeah as far as that is concerned yeah i i do i do admire i think he, i think he was there was a better class of villain back in the day yeah i mean know? i would much rather have a conversation with Kalergi than Angela Merkel, uh, <laughs> Angela Merkel, or uh, I don't know, Jack Posobiec. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I'll take I'll take the race mixing and yeah, and right. the, you know everything, all but, the all the bad with the if I can just talk to Clerky rather than well, right. some moron like well, the thing? So, evil like, moron like Jack would Pasovia. I choose would I choose Calergy over Klaus Schwab any day of the week? You know, oh, okay. the head, there's a good comparison, right? The head of the year, the head of the the World Economic Forum currently, right? He's doing the exact same thing Calgary was doing, but in a completely ridiculous way. Doesn't he own a bank? Schwab? I don't know if he does or not. No, no, he owns BlackRock. That oh. which is because Schwab is a bank, isn't it? I'm. Sh- I don't know if it's oh, his bank. Oh, maybe There used to be a bank called yeah. yeah Schwab Bank. I don't know if it's his. It might have been his family's because he is from he is from Switzerland, okay. right? So he's a Swiss. He is a Swiss guy. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Clocks, ba- chocolate, back and to, banks. Back to Switzerland, right? So the thing is, though, is that he is doing the same thing by uniting the world's industrial and technological powers behind him, right? In with BlackRock and with the World Economic Forums. And he has all these, these, you know, like the 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 green plans, like the great reset, and the great narrative, and all this other stuff. He's he's doing a, a very sick, warped version of it. But at the same time, again, Calgary had the better concept, was more well informed, and ha- and was more forthright with his ideologies. I think the, the the concept that he put racial 
understanding at like the forefront. It was just kind of an understanding that that Calgary had, where Schwab is is just suppressing all of that to just be straight propaganda consistently. So Schwab is more of that secret society kind of guy mm-hmm. that that is you know dirty and underhanded, uh, and then utilizes propaganda more so to his advantage uh, than Calgary did. Where Calgary was was kind of open with most of his his dealings, which I think was again he's the better villain. Yeah, he wrote a, He wrote a ton of books. Yeah. And- I mean, laid, laid, laid it all out there, right? And like, I I own now. Unfortunately, I I've have, I've have now purchased all of Schwab's books, and uh, I'm going to tell you right now, Calgary was Calgary's the better writer. He had the better ideology, and he's just he's the better villain. <laughs> Calgary is the better villain than Schwab. So, all right, next question. Then. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say yeah. Qualified, like yes, no on clear on on adv- admiring him. Yeah, it's like yeah, he's he's still bad, but. Like you can understand the you can understand him in his error. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a good way of putting. These it. other people. Ugh, yeah, man. I know it's 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 a mystery. Honestly, it's at times as to what it is that they're actually going for. Besides just the uh, the cult of finance. Yeah, we kind of already covered some of this other stuff. Let's see. We can just oh, say- um, Calergi's virtually forgotten today. Should he be considered a major figure? Personally, I would say yes. Honestly, I, I think that he's one of those forgotten guys. And I, I think on purpose, honestly, I think he's forgotten on purpose because he is the better villain. The fact that he is the better option. Well, he was having meetings with like Churchill. Right? As soon as he gets off the boat coming back from America in 1946, he's having lunch with Churchill. Right. I mean, I guess Churchill was out of power at the time. But, still, though. It's but just... he was he was still a major political figure. And he could get meetings with Mussolini, with Schusnig or Dolphus or Name Masaryk him. or... Yeah. De Gaulle. No, well, De Gaulle. Right. It was before De Gaulle. Oh, he was God. big back in, died in 1928. Uh, French premier. I, I, hate to, I hate to be an asshole with some irrelevant French politician. <laughs> yeah, whatever. He, he was fr- all these French people. And right. <laughs> by that, I mean Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, he just got meeting. He just, like, if you're able to meet with all these people, it sort of follows yeah. that you you are somebody important but that's the thing is i think that it was deliberate in the fact that he has forgotten because mm. again if, if people were to get a hold of this information of what calgary wanted for the european union they would see how divergent the current eu is from pan europa mm. they would see that what the direction it's going in currently is just a puppet state as compared to the the sovereign empire that calgary had envisioned which is so i guess why most or we could posit maybe why this stuff hasn't been translated in english so much of right, it because they don't want it to be that's it's the same. It's, uh, there's a reason why Schwab has been translated well, know, into eight well, different languages, but well, he hasn't. I mean, Calgary hasn't. The, I mean, just on a technical point of view, like the rights to these books are owned by the Pan Europa movement or whatever its successor is. Though the European Union, it's, the European it's, Union owns the rights. It even has like yeah, there's symbology on all of these things. Yeah, uh-huh. and you would think, yeah, you would think English, they, the European Union and and the. The globalists are, <laughs> the are globalists. all about pushing English on everybody. Right. So you'd think they would have translated these into English uh, and, and pushed Pan Europa in English. Pan Europa does exist in English. I've got a copy, but it's it's like machine translated. It's probably not. The best thing is it's probably not an official translation is the thing. And that's kind uh-huh. of the, the deal is that, I again, to my point, I don't think they want it translated. I don't think they want it mass disseminated because if more people knew what the original plan of Pan Europa and the European Union was supposed to be, they would see what's going on now and they might actually revolt. So did our did our boy Martin Bond here who wrote Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard, did he like 
has he accidentally subverted yeah. the European Union? It's a faux pas, man. He screwed up. <laughs> and according- this guy is he. Martin Bond has enjoyed three careers, journalist, academic, European civil servant. He taught uh, West European studies in Northern Ireland, BBC correspondent in Berlin, was spokesman for the Council of Ministers in Brussels, directed the London office of European Parliament, and now uh, advises University of Surrey's Jean Monnet Center, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that I think that he I, that, I think that that was a screw up, <laughs> you know, because he spent he, he spent five or seven years, I think, writing this book and it he uses, you know, there's all the German and French sources and English sources that he uses. I guess he screwed up. I mean, one yeah. one uh, before I, I we have to mention it. One thing we did note reading this book is M- Martin Bond mentions that there is a unpublished Calergi book. Uh, oh yes form that's held at the archives some town in switzerland not zurich not geneva some some pastoral. no it's uh i remember yeah it, it's it's northeast of geneva there's it's a small va- town Vaud or something like that it's some weird town but it's, it's a small town on it's on the specific on the same road going northeast of of geneva it's about 30 to 45 minutes outside of geneva by drive uh, if that. Yeah, we looked because we, we might wanted have to this go so find badly. this manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a manuscript in German. I think it's mostly typed. Maybe some of it's still handwritten, and it's called The Amazons. Yes. Uh, now, which is funny that he would talk about that, because in Practical Idealism, he specifically talks about how the emancipation of women was a bad idea. <laughs> and uh-huh. But he also talks about, in obviously, in De Amazonen, as it is, right, that that there is these this historical aspect of matriarchy um which is an interesting thing now to be fair considering none of us have read it yet because it's it's over anybody's read it right and i would imagine that somewhere within that he actually describes how matriarchy is probably not a good thing judging on the rest of his works Mm. elsewhere because he, he spent like the last several years of his life writing this book, and it might, and honestly, might have not been published on purpose because it would have been a damning concept of emancipation of women. That's pretty funny, right? I, well, we're, well, uh, somebody's gonna have to get us a copy. I of this want, book. I want a copy very badly. I guess we could call. I, I was thinking we could maybe just call them up and ask for photocopies. You know, yeah, send, them, send PDF, them a check please? or send them a Venmo them some money, and we could get photocopies of it. Here's a couple grand. Just put it here, please. <laughs> Yeah, I would be very interested to know what's in that book. I mean, yeah. it, it might have just be ins- it might on the other hand it might just be total insanity. It, yeah, he it might, might just be like, well, uh, you know, in before civilization there was matriarchy. And- I but judging on the rest of Calgary's work, I highly doubt that that's what it is. I think this is one of the I I bet you any money, this is one of the most damning critiques of matriarchy and female emancipation that's ever been written and it's been vaulted mm. for a reason. In you, Switzerland, we, we no, could de- no. so we could destroy his reputation uh, uh, it might among have, it the might globalists have, and, well, and the thing, res- it might it might destroy the reputation of what the EU is preaching currently. Mm-hmm. I think it might be a damning thing to actually put out, and would probably ruin the what they have now created as the legacy ideology of what Kalaki actually was. Or it might be it might be really woke and it also would true. actually become super popular if it were published in English. True. So um, maybe we should have a project on that. Yeah. <laughs> Getting our hands on that would be a very interesting thing. So, what other questions we got? All right, on, on I think that's one? I think that's it. Any uh, to well, one last question. All right, was Clergy a Shabboskoy, or <laughs> was he an important ideologue and political actor? <sighs> that's a hard one. I hate to say that it's a hard one because obviously he married a Jewess and all the other fun. Yeah, stuff. was he just a mouthpiece, or was he what? I think he originally wasn't, but he became one, like post hoc kind of thing. You mean circa 1950? Yeah, I think that after after he 
after he kind of ran his course and the people and you know like the 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 powers that be right that became big issues i think that they i feel like honestly maybe his idealism turned him into a shaboskoy on like unintentionally mm. like he played into their hands without without intending to do so might have been the bigger deal there yeah i mean i would say he, it seems like he sort of like a surfer he he saw the wave coming he <laughs> yeah. got on the board correctly you know hitler just got on his board and was like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna go over that wave yeah <laughs> 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 watch this yeah hold my beer clergy's <laughs> <laughs> like all right i'm gonna start paddling away real fast yeah, and like then the wave came and, and he it went just, way up and it took him into the reef <laughs> well yeah. he mostly wrote it down pretty well but yeah, yeah. and he just crashed into the reef but that's the thing he does he didn't have he didn't have a really cool wipeout like hitler did you know like Hitler was, Hitler rode the peak of the wave and then wiped out, right? And then Calgary was like, "Oh, I'll just ride the wave until it's nothing anymore." And then it just kind of like he just, it's not, it's like he like, it's he cool. like fell off and face planted in the sand, the wet sand on and the beach, like, uh, and then just like drowned. Yeah, it was like, ah, oh, cool, cool ride, bro, but it wasn't really a cool ending, right? Like Hitler was like, he he had the surfer music playing in the background or whatever, and there was a massive wipeout, right? Like he had, he rode it to the peak, massive wipeout, the the the, the barrel and everything. It was a gorgeous run, right? And then on top of that, people hail him because his wipeout was so cool, right? Yeah, As compared yeah. to like Calergy's like filtering out at the end there. Yeah, Not to so use I, like super I, colloquial I, I guess stuff. I the main but. the main thing on Calergy that my my main takeaway is that he um, comparing him to Hitler, Calergy is ninety five percent right about everything. Yeah, he just comes to some wrong conclusions in a spectacularly evil way. Right, uh, or that could be utilized that, in a spectacularly evil right, way. Right, that that then give us the political and ideological situation we have in Europe today, which is, I mean, just, yeah. yeah we, we don't even have the like, utterly, utterly, utterly absurd. I mean, forget about immigration and all, all that and race mixing and, right, and all that. The insanity. politics even itself. Just, even just the, the notion that uh, Germany and France can be independent actors. Yeah. It's like, I'm not, I'm not against that, of course. Well, I'm not, like, I'm not against Germany and France being you know real countries but <laughs> like if we're just looking at what how things actually are right it is nothing like what clergy wanted no not at all and it's it's not a federation in any sense it is a it's i think the best comparison of europe to america now is like rome to the italian city states in the second or first second century bc say where you've got like a, a clearly dominant power and then either half rights or pseudo rights for the uh, allied half latin cities or right. allied cities and it's a total puppet state. it's gonna i don't know if clergy foresaw this i don't know if spangler did but i think what's gonna have to happen with europe is that there's gonna have to be a sort of basically the same thing that's gonna happen that happened with rome and the italian allies where there's going to be a fight of some kind where the italian allies are like we want to be roman citizens too <laughs> and rome is gonna be like no you can't be Roman citizens, but then there's going to be a fight and Rome's going to win the fight militarily or politically. But in the end, like the Italian allies are going to get the, get what they want and they're going to get citizenship. And then it's all going to be incorporated into one. Yeah, one way or state. the other, Europe has got to become sovereign on its own. There's 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 no way for Europe to survive in any way, shape or form with the control mechanisms that are placed well, on either side of it. I mean, I was suggesting that Europe and the United States are just got to unite. Well, there could that I mean, uh, God, that's a. 
Yeah, that'd be kind of a cool idea, but then that gets into 1984 I mean, with the, the, the Atlantic the pers- Alliance that Orwell was talking about, you know? Well, okay, but that was a stupid fiction book. Like, I'm I mean, talking fair, reality but- here. <laughs> I think the most likely, the best outcome for Europe and America is we need we need American political power and military power, and we need European cultural power. And, and, and yeah, like, our we you can't have... America without Europe is absurd, right. and... You need both, and we need a way to like kind of bring the two together. Actually, that would be my main criticism of Kalergi is the whole idea of having a independent Europe. Uh, it's it's like having an independent. It would be like saying, "Oh, let's have the Greek empires of the of the Hellenistic era be be independent for another for like five hundred years after Alexander." It's like, yeah, maybe maybe a little while, but eventually they're going to have to be incorporated into the whole civilization, which is, you know, Rome and Greece. Same thing with us. And I feel and, like it could have happened. Like back in the day, Europe would have been the center of it. Well, it, you know, if, if if Germany had won the war, right. or both wars, then we would be. It would be yes, Germany would be the leading the leading political power. Then and Europe I would, would be we, I would be talking about we need to subordinate America to right. Germany. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's like in a way what I want. Right. It's like, don't, I'm not, don't call me an America shell here. Like, yeah, right. I, I think it's, both of us agree. Yeah, it's that's like, not yeah, happening. No. No. Hitler should have won the war. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're all on the, that. Page. That would have been better. Right. But because he didn't, we have this absurd a, and bad a totally different situation. Situation now where America has all the political and military power for Europe and European culture to survive. It needs to be incorporated into America in a non-gay and non-retarded way. And that's kind of that's that's, that's the big question right. of the century is how to make it not gay and not retarded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely discuss that later because I have a lot of thoughts on that. I'm sure you do too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Richard Kudenhove Kaleri. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in the subject, to get this book by Martin Bond, Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard. Uh, it's a very good read, very well done, very well researched, very even. Um, by far the best treatment of the subject that can be had. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm.